0: Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and joining me for some conversation once again today are Jason and Rachel. Good morning, Jason and Rachel. Good morning. Hello.
1: Good to be with y'all again.
0: Yeah, it is. So we are going to to sort of continue our conversations about the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, uh, as maybe they're better known to some people. If you're with us all the time on Sundays, this may be a conversation that you would that you think, man, we've talked about this enough. But as we keep saying, we see this as sort of a comprehensive study. And, and, and I think it's it's a study that has, to me, shown that there's always there's always more to talk about or more to get into. And so that's what we wanted to do a little bit of today. And we thought this would be a good opportunity Um because the three of us so far are the three that have sort of had a had a presenting role or a speaking role in the two words or the two commands that that we have covered so far in this series. So I've preached both the sermons. Jason taught the adult class uh, for the first word, and then Rachel did for the second word. And so we thought this would be a good opportunity to to have a conversation amongst the three of us about kind of what we've seen, what we've Uh, experienced in it so far, maybe what surprised us, anything like that. And so what I thought we would do is um, I want to read them first, just as kind of a recap um, and reminder, or if you only participate kind of in, in the podcast, through the podcast, and aren't a part of other things going on at the Vine, that may be helpful as well. And so I also think, though, that these two words are they're very much connected, and in fact, some people see them as one command or one word instead of two separate ones. We've split them up into one and two, but I do think they're very much connected, so it makes sense, I think, to have this conversation together. And, and so I'm going to read it, and then I'd be curious. We'll just kind of jump in and see where, if, I'll see if either of you have a place you want to start in some conversation. Otherwise, we'll get into some more kind of specific dialogue and questions and, and thoughts. am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so that's that's the extent of what we've covered so far, and already there's a lot in there. Do either of you have just kind of general Thoughts, reflections on what we've covered so far on either of those words or in anything that we've covered in the conversation so far.
2: Well, um, so coming into this study, I saw these two commands as uh, very closely connected. In fact, so much so that at times I had to think really hard to try to differentiate. How it actually is it different from the second? Um, and what I came to was the thought that the first command or the first word is about priorities so what directs my actions my desires my motivations um what what is the kind of guiding principle or principles in my life what's the guiding force and god makes it clear that that him his will his uh you know, guidance should be primary in my life. And the second command is about what we believe um, looks like or represents God. Um, and this is something that both of you in, the, the, in what y'all talked about on Sunday kind of went into in terms of the image of God, the representation of God, um, not just other gods, but Yahweh God. Um, what what do we believe that looks like or represents? And that um, humankind, as stated in Genesis, is the ultimate image of God um, and and kind of made perfect in the person of Jesus Christ. And while we do not worship each other, we don't worship the um, the humanity per se, We should still honor the image of God by, you know, caring for each other, by looking for the best in each other, by, um, you know, being slow to judge or by not judging each other harshly and and being slow to judge and and quick to forgive and and quick to mercy. And that that is how we go about honoring the image of God. Um, And so by taking something that is human-made, so to speak, and saying that this is the image of God, Um it, you know, I, I think, Warren, you, you said in your sermon that it not only disparages God, but it also kind of disparages the, the glory that, that humanity has of being made in the image of God. Um, and so that's how I've seen those as differentiated. And it is... You know, one thing that we talked about in the class that I led on the first word uh, is that it's easy to kind of be lulled into a false sense of security that these aren't relevant for our lives. But the more I've been studying it and thinking about it the last few weeks, the more I've come to actually believe that these may be the most relevant for us. Not only the most relevant because God says that they're the most important, putting them first and second, um, but because these are the ones that we can be lulled into a sense of complacency and not really see how relevant they are when they are probably much more relevant than any of them, in my opinion.
1: That's good. So the last few nights, I've had this question that I feel like God has has put into my mind as I'm about to fall asleep. And it's, how is god forming a um countercultural community through the giving of these words and i just i think this is a part of the the essence of especially these first two is that all the other communities around them had physical tangible gods that they could worship or offer sacrifices to and so I've just been thinking about how is God forming something unique and different and special by creating a community that's not centered around images of a God, but around this relationship with a God that cannot be limited to an image.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think that point is really what, because I had, I had intended to go in a different direction for this, for the sermon on the second word um as i was kind of first imagining the series i i i initially envisioned it much more kind of as as an extension of the first week where kind of cuz in my mind the first week the essence of the first week was anything can be a god or we can we can transform anything in our lives into a god and then in my mind the second week was going to sort of be and and the idols the images are whatever we create or craft that represent whatever became that God for us. Um, and and I ended up shifting in my mind, at least for the sermon, to thinking that, man, there are ways that we envision or craft God that are incredibly limiting, as Rachel said, um, or in some cases just flat out inaccurate or, or wrong, and either of those can hinder our our witness our our spiritual formation um, our worship, our service, whatever you want to attach there it can do and and I think to your point, Jason, about kind of be, being lulled into complacency, I think is is a is a version maybe of what you said, kind of of we can be lulled into thinking that these don't apply to us um I kind of referenced that the first week as well. And I do think that idea fits in with where we'll go next week, not to jump ahead, but I think you could almost take next week kind of a version of the next command about, you know, not misusing the Lord's name or not taking his name in vain. Another way to word that would be kind of just at a very base level that language matters and the words we use matter. And and I think that works in these first two commands because if we don't call something God, it's easy for me to think that I'm not worshiping it. And I think that's where we that's where we kind of get lulled into thinking these don't apply to us. But but they certainly certainly do for all the reasons we've referenced already in this conversation and over the last two weeks. Uh so I'm curious from y'all's perspective perspective, was there anything else as you studied for for kind of the week that that you were gonna lead a discussion about this, was there anything that surprised you either in your study kind of leading up to that week or in the conversation that ended up happening um, as part of your your class discussion?
1: (laughs) Well, I could say that, um, yeah, I think I was surprised by a few things. So one is that image making is a slippery slope. And so the other nations around Israel made images of gods and worshiped them. And so if Israel were not making images of those other gods, but even of Yahweh, the god that they have a covenant with, eventually it's going to lead them down a path of syncretism, which is what we see with the golden calf story. And God doesn't want his name mixed with other names, names of other deities, fake deities. And so there's this idea of exclusivity, that God speaks exclusively about the people of Israel. They have been elected to be his people and to serve him out of all the nations of the earth. And thus, in return, God expects this exclusive devotion back from his people. And so he's chosen them as his people, and he also expects them to choose him back. And so I think the, these first two are tied into this Kind of marriage language, and that was something that I, I wanted us to talk about in class, but we didn't quite get to. Is how how these words parallel marriage vows, and that God is basically making a marriage covenant relationship with the people, and He expects them to be faithful to it, um, or desires them to be. And so, the essence of the first two, I think, is talking about the true worship of God. And one of the authors we read, Yu Sing Lucas Chan talked about how the first two are teaching the people the true worship of God communally and morally, that there's this communal importance to how they worship God. And there's also a moral um, aspect of the worship of God. And so I think that's some of what was helpful to me is that basically God is protecting the people from thinking that they're worshiping him, but actually Mm. worshiping something else that they've put his name on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that for me was the most surprising thing for me personally about kind of the second word and the connection to the golden calf story, as you mentioned, Rachel, is that I, I think I'd always read that story as they were making a God for themselves to replace Yahweh or to kind of be someone or something they would worship or serve instead of Yahweh, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I read the story that way anymore. I think I read it as they were trying to make a visual representation of Yahweh that was something less scary, less intimidating, less challenging than what they were experiencing with this formless version of Yahweh. Um, and and maybe they had great intentions for this. Maybe their intentions were this is going to be a way that we can connect with God, with this God who brought us out of Egypt in in kind of clearer, uh, clearer, more tangible ways. And, and so I, that, that's sort of how I, I read it now. And, and so I, to, for me, that makes God's response even more interesting where he tells Moses, like, these people are corrupt, um, because of, I think, I think kind of what you were getting at there, Rachel. And, and that, that just brought up a lot of questions for me, some of which I kind of explored in the sermon. But even like thinking about the ways that we, that we often begin teaching our kids about Jesus is often through images of, what we, of a person, right? Of, we, we present the, these images of a person to our, to our kids as we start teaching them about Jesus. And it's, it's just inter- interesting to me that kind of that's where we typically start. And it has made me appreciate even more... Um, those who are trying to present that story or to even present Jesus in kind of more abstract or creative ways. Uh, we have a, a like it, it's already been one of my favorite kind of kids resources. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It can, it, it, for instance, it presents creation, not narratively focused like day one, day two, as, as others do. It's very kind of um, more story driven, Uh, about what god is doing through creation and, and incorporates like poetry and just kind of some different stuff but you know i've been even thinking even since this kind of last sermon that even their picture of jesus although they do have a very human kind of picture for him he doesn't look like what i would expect him to look like in a children's bible and so even that i think is good Like if we're going to do it, let's at least have some diversity or differences. Let's not constrict Jesus to one body type, look, race, whatever. Um, That if we can at least diversify how we picture him, we become less um, beholden to one Mm -hmm. image of who or what he was as a human.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's, that's at the heart of taking ourselves out of the center of our faith and our worship. um, I think that by kind of, well, to to kind of put it simply, to create God in our own image, um, I think puts ourselves at that center, whether we intend to do that or not. And if we're always seeing the same representation of what Jesus looks like or what God looks like, even if it is a, you know, kind of fanciful or or placeholder sort of image that we teach kids, and if it's looking like us and always looking like us, then we're putting ourselves in that center. I think in the sermon yesterday, uh, you said something about how uh, we're, when we make an image of God, it, it's going to we're, we're running the risk of failing in one of two ways and maybe both. We're either putting God in a box, meaning that God won't challenge us or be a hindrance to our own kind of desires and ambitions, or we'll make God in our own image. And both have tragic consequences. You know, I think that it's really easy to believe that our image of God as, you know, this, um, this ruler who expects us to pay tribute and uh and check a bunch of boxes and that's it is missing the point and if we say well i go to church every sunday um i you know give to the church and um you know that's that's really good enough i go to church and i uh give give some money to the church well that's kind of, in my mind, that's creating an image of God, maybe not a physical representation per se, but it's creating an image of God that is not what God is and isn't what God looks like. Um, and and, and we're, we're basically setting up a God that allows us to do what we want as long as we check a few boxes. Hmm. Um, hmm. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah,
0: so maybe there, there are less concrete ways that we can build images
2: of God that that still impact our, our worship and service. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I don't know how many people are actually at risk nowadays of, of creating a, an actual physical idol and that being, you know, problematic the way the golden calves were um, for, you know, people during Moses' time, but... Uh, I I think we do it in in other ways. We violate that 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 word in other ways that may be a little bit more e- easily for easy for us to excuse. Well, I do think I do think there could be
0: times where where created images or or places or icons or something uh, can become more the object of our worship than they are intended to. Oh sure,
2: yeah, absolutely,
0: and so I think that's where we still struggle with that. that may be it even as simple as a church building like maybe the church building has in some ways become an idol um, maybe the physical Bible in some ways has become an idol I think I think at times we we struggle with worshiping that even instead of. God and and Jesus who were revealed through the Bible. And so I do think there are sort of ways that we still craft things that end up uh, taking on that object of worship role more so than something that points us to God or is a vehicle for our worship or something that helps us to serve or worship God. Um, It it becomes the point instead of, it, it becomes the end instead of the means to the end.
1: There's there's one avenue of this that um, I just I guess I want to ask y'all about. And so, if you look at art across the cultures of the world and throughout history, and if you look at nativity scenes or the the birth narrative pictures of Jesus, um, or just art of Jesus, you'll see people creating. Art that reflects their own culture. So, like we have a nativity scene that's Egyptian papyrus, and um, you know there are paintings of like fully very black, like dark dark skinned Jesus and his family, Chinese Jesus and, and his family, um, and so we know that Jesus was a Middle Eastern man, but we ourselves have made Jesus white in our tradition in in our art. But across cultures, people have been making God in their image, in a way. But I don't think it's for the purpose of bowing down and worshiping it and serving it as God prohibits. I do think there is an element of beauty in the fact that people have depicted Jesus as someone of their own people and culture. Um, because that shows enculturation of the gospel. So there's like people in China are saying the gospel is not this Western religion, but it's something that has a home in my culture and in my place. And so I want to show my people that Jesus can look like us because Jesus comes and dwells with us. Um, And so to me, that enculturation of the gospel aspect and that Jesus is part of me I think that there is something good and healthy about that. Um, And so I think, yeah, as long as you're not like worshiping that, I think that is, it it could look like making God in your image, but I think that it's actually almost what God wants to happen. Like he wants us to identify and realize God dwells with us. His home is made with us.
2: Well, yeah. And I I think the problem really only comes in if somebody presents a different image of God, how resistant are you to that? That isn't what you're, what you're looking at. How resistant are you to a dark skinned Jesus or a, a, uh, an image of Jesus that may have more Middle Eastern or, uh, or, or Eastern Asian features. Is that something that you feel, um, you know, is a problem? Um, I can see the benefit of doing that, but but I think the, the danger comes in how resistant are we to uh, to alternative images, you know?
1: And I think that then reveals that we have made our image the idol. We have said, no, right. God can yeah. only look like right. this, or when yeah. it rubs against our, our preconceived notions in other areas, like there was an artistic depiction of Jesus and Mary. Um, And and Joseph fleeing like immigrants when immigration was a hot button issue a few years ago, and they looked Hispanic. And so that was very offensive to some people. But we're like, by the way, Jesus was a refugee. Like he fled for his life out of his country when he was a baby with his parents.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I, th- I think that's where it becomes an issue. And I think that's where the issue of worship comes in, is that if I exclusively have one image of Jesus, I end up worshiping that image of Jesus, I think. Um, and that, that is where I think, and I kind of mentioned this in the sermon, that's where I think this has a generational impact, because I end up passing down that to another, to, to the next generation, and then it becomes more ingrained. Um, it becomes more indoctrinated as it's passed down, I think. And so I think that's where the issue of worship comes in. So, yeah, I agree with you, Rachel. I do think there's value in each culture seeing themselves in the story of Jesus and, and seeing that Jesus has a connection with me. Um, as, as long as we are, as Jason said, able to kind of or not or, or willing and and um, eager to do that across cultures um, and to recognize that Jesus in the flesh, while we can see him in all these different races, Jesus did have, as a human, a race and ethnicity and and place in the world. <laughs> and so I think I can acknowledge that and also see him connecting with different cultures across the world. Um, and so I think there's there's value in all those things. I also think if you extend it out from there, this is something I, you know— because I kind of in the sermon kind of re- kind of kept it with there with kind of the picture we have of Jesus, but I think there are ways that we can do that with God too, and and this may be more difficult for some people, but I think there are issues that we have if we only see God as male, um, and I know that's a lot of the language of the Bible, and He's God the Father, and I get that, but but I don't think I don't think uh, God is God the Father, God the Creator of universe is constrained by our ways of thinking about gender. Um, and so I think even things like that can be inhibiting if we aren't willing to kind of explore some of those things. And I think that can be helpful in thinking about God and not being constrained to one image of God. But I didn't want to that, – that seemed like a lot to bring into the sermon, so I didn't even go there. Well,
2: I think I think <laughs> that's just another aspect of how we we read the phrase that – um, man and woman were made in the image of God and we try to turn that the other way around to say that God is like us um, and we apply different um, characteristics to what that means so God looks like me a you know, white, educated uh, middle class American male Um, And so it's very easy for me to imagine a God that looks like, sounds like, thinks like me. Um, but, But the mistake in that is in recognizing that while Jesus was God in human form, in a particular time, place, you know, gender, ethnicity, all that kind of stuff, God supersedes all of that. Yahweh supersedes all of that. Um, and so our constructs of what it means to be human do not apply to Yahweh. Uh, it applied to Jesus, who was God in human form. Uh, but if we're talking about God the Father, God Yahweh, God the Creator, that God supersedes these physical and human characteristics that we will want to apply to it and so to me that means god is no gender and every gender god is no ethnicity and every ethnicity that that god is all and none at the same time that's good i like that
1: so the hebrew name for the spirit is feminine um the yeah And then the Greek is actually neuter, which just means without gender grammatically, but grammatically and like physically speaking would be different things. Um, But the Syriac and many early Christian traditions considered the spirit as feminine. Um, And so I think that perceiving of this spirit as feminine is not biblically wrong. Um, But since the spirit does not have a physical body (laughs) right so he, he or she should not be thought of as having human dna or physical attributes whether male or female having physical characteristics so i think the modern christian tradition or the broad christian tradition refers to spirit as he but there are traditions within the history of christianity who refer to the spirit as she um and so, and I don't really think Scripture forbids, but the one thing it does forbid is calling God "it," because God is not an "it." God is not a force or an impersonal. You know, God is a being,
2: and that's what yeah. that's what, in my mind, explains why a gender, more often masculine gender, is applied to God uh, throughout the Christian Bible is because God is a personal God or personable God. God is is not a inanimate object that we would refer to as it. And so within at least within the English construct of language, although although I know that this precedes, you know, the English language, uh, you know, we don't have good pronouns or good ways to describe genderless beings you know we don't have good ways to do that we have it and new kind of gender neutral things but typically those are applied to more inanimate objects and things that don't have an essence or a a spirit um and so in the absence of that i can i can understand using you know masculine or feminine pronouns or or ways of relating to it but i think all of that kind of convolutes the nature and identity of God. It makes God seem to be something that God is not, namely masculine or feminine exclusively. And again, uh, kind of to bring it back around to the topic of conversation, that that is another way in which we uh, want to see God in our own image that we want to see God, a representation of God that looks like me, because either as a man or if I'm a woman, maybe I am eager to see God as a as a man, because that's a image that I can understand, you know, rather than this genderless, but still personable uh, spirit.
0: Yeah, but I, yeah, and and to Rachel's point about kind of the the he or it of spirit, I I remember kind of first studying about the spirit years ago and come I had I had always referred to the spirit as an it because it didn't seem like a person. He he or she didn't seem like a person to me, and I remember coming to that conclusion and and kind of being like, "Oh yeah, the spirit is referred to very personally throughout scripture," and and coming to that conclusion of, "Yeah, the spirit is a he, not an it." Um, but I think your point, Rachel, is is a great one, and that even that language shift of seeing seeing the spirit as he or she or or however else you might want to think about it there could be broadening and less limiting and and more inclusive. Uh, kind of to Jason's point, that maybe that could be a way of um, of helping everyone to connect with and to see the spirit because. Yeah, maybe part of why we've always said he is because most of our most of our presenters or or preachers traditionally have been men. Uh so maybe that's part of it and that that there's some inclusive language there that we could that we could do well to use and and to help us not limit our our comprehension or understanding of God in in that way as well.
1: I sense that maybe the point we're driving toward is that our own conception or understanding of God could itself be an idol. If we have yeah. created this construction of who we believe God is, and we're not willing to examine the scriptures and test if that is accurate, then that image itself could be an idol for us.
0: Absolutely. Good, good summation. Um, so we started kind of on that, that line of thought with, with about this question of anything, did anything surprise us? And so Rachel got us headed that direction. I want to come back to that. Jason, from your week, was there anything that, that surprised you or caught you off guard either by your study or kind of this discussion on that word?
2: It, it was actually pretty surprising once I started looking into it how much there is to talk about with, uh, with that first one. Um, I, I think I started out the class by kind of discussing how, when I was a kid, learning the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, it felt archaic. It didn't feel that that the first two commandments really had any kind of relevance in my life. Um, and of course, since then, I think I, I I hope I've grown in my conception of of. Uh, you know, what is relevant in my life and that a lot that may seem irrelevant at first really isn't as archaic and, um, useless as, as I initially thought. Um, but especially with the, the first word or the first command, um, it, it really struck me how profoundly relevant and important and how much I have to guard against putting other gods before Yahweh. Um, you know, my, my own kind of earthly ambitions and, um, and ideas of what's important and where my priorities lie, that that is very prone to distortion and falling out of line. And, um, I think I, I kind of realized that going in, but just as I studied and prepared for the class, that really stood out to me. The other thing was, um, I was a little surprised and not that this was a bad thing but I was a little bit surprised at, at, in terms of how much our conversation in class at least at the beginning was about sort of understanding the nature of how people worship um and so there was some conversation around like um especially like if you think about the the Israelites and how they were prone to sometimes fall into worshipping Baal or other pagan gods of the of the time and the place um you know there's some conversation around how how could people do that and i at one point i said well you know think about how our faith and our religion has evolved i think sometimes we um you know we if we think, if you think too hard about it and try to put yourself in the mind of an outsider, Christianity sounds pretty bizarre in and of itself. <laughs> uh, and so, I, I think it's it's easy to get lulled into the sense of, oh well, ours isn't one of those weirdo religions out there. Well, it is if you're not in Christianity. It is one of those weirdo religions. So we just eat our savior every. Exactly, Sunday. prime <laughs> example right there.
0: Yeah, I think even, I think Jesus leaned into the bizarreness of it at times um, to to try to push people or, or whatever different. We've talked about that before in different places, but yeah, I think, I think he leaned into that sometimes.
1: <laughs> I wonder if the, if this series is helping us to, to consider that Christianity is not obvious. Um, It's not necessarily easily understandable to everyone if you didn't grow up in that context and you weren't learning these things from a young age. And so many people have not had the exposure that we have had and many years of slowly learning and, and, and sometimes to our detriment of we don't consider the word of God deeply because we are so accustomed to it. So I shared about my experience visiting a Hindu temple, and I did not mean that to be a knock on Hindus or those who visit the temple whatsoever, but more of compassion for those who have not had the exposure to the one true God that that I believe in and um, that they have have not even been familiar with these commands of God of you shall have no other gods before me. and I think that, that we would do well to realize that, yes, we are, we are well-versed in this tradition and this faith of ours, but much of the world is not, and many of our neighbors are not. And so we come to it with a lot of assumptions and a lot of our own acculturation, but we should remember that there are people who, for, polytheism is still very real, and that is their way of life. Um, and so for me, it's just more of like compassion of of realizing that these things that God is talking about, He was creating a countercultural people, and and we are still countercultural. Um, and so remember that many of our neighbors don't have that concept of of one God.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's the mistake that Christian evangelists have made for centuries of oversimplifying and, and, and seeing Christianity as, well, taking for, taking for granted kind of the journey that someone must go through to accept Christ and oversimplifying. I, I, I forgot how you put it, but, but basically making it seem more obvious than it really is uh, to much of the world. Um, I think that that, Has led to a lot of conflict and consternation and and problems between Christians and non Christians, in large part because, you know, if I put forth an argument that I believe is rock solid, you know, this is Yahweh, this is Jesus, um, here's what the Bible says, and I have what I feel is a convicting and rock solid, sound um, justification for my faith and you aren't convinced by it well it's not it's tempting to then say well it's not a problem with the argument i've put forth it must be a problem with you you're too stubborn you're too ignorant uh you are you know overcome by satan or something and so there's a problem with you and that robs us of the compassion and the empathy and the grace that we need to still continue to interact with people um, and rather than seeing it as as some, as some kind of failure on the part of the listener. And I see that a lot, you know, in in the relational counseling I do outside of necessarily conversations about faith. but I think that that we've often fallen victim to that in kind of trying to evangelize our faith and then becoming frustrated when our efforts aren't met with the kind of conversion that we're looking for.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that mindset also serves to devalue and and cause us to not engage our own questions and doubts. Right. Because I, I have this feeling that well it, it should be something that is self evident. Um, and so I think that that phrase that you used, Rachel, Christianity is not obvious. We could do a um, we could do a whole podcast about that. Um, and and I agree with you. And I think there are all kinds of different. Paths we could explore with that about what does that mean for how we talk to others, engage others, present Christianity, all all kinds of different things. But I want to play just for a minute. I'm going to put you on the spot and play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Okay, you ready, Rachel? Sure.
1: So if Chris, I if don't, Christianity I don't respond well, but I'll try. Hi. <laughs>
0: right. Oh, you do. If Christianity is not obvious, what do I do then? With with for instance Romans one twenty when Paul says for since the creation of the world's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse so again this is just devil's advocate what how do i hold those two realities at the same time
1: to me the responsibility for us as christians is discipleship so yes god has made himself obvious But Paul also says, how can they believe if no one has preached to them? Um, How can they hear if no one has spoken? So we have that burden on ourselves of to actually explain through relationship and love and compassion and to to show them who Jesus is. Um, I think, yes, God has made himself obvious through his creation. And even when I was working with Native Americans, they believed in one supreme being, a creator. And so a lot of what we did was to to talk with them about Jesus and about his role in creation and to help them see that connection between a sovereign supreme being or creator God and Jesus, who is the image of that God and the fulfillment. So I would say it's not on the unbelievers. The burden is not on them. The burden is on us who who know God, who know Yahweh um, to make disciples and to fill in the gaps, I guess God has done his work, but we also have a part to play
2: to kind of uh I, I know you're you're playing devil's advocate, but I think that picking that verse out you know commits the 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 failure that we often do when looking at bible verses, and that we're where' i was cherry I was cherry, you were totally I was cherry picking i was cherry picking on purpose yeah I, know. I was doing I it, it. it on purpose I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, if you look just a little bit earlier, um, you know, in verse 14, Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. If if it was just so plain as to to for that, for verse 20 to be interpreted in that way, then Paul wouldn't have that eagerness to preach the gospel. Uh, but he goes on to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, and so what he's what verse 20 really is about are the people who have, who have heard and actually do believe they're actually believers but they are still kind of living in an ungodly unrighteous manner that uh, he, he says in verse 10 who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them that implies that there are people for whom it's not plain. And for whom it hasn't been shown to them. Um, and and so that to me is an indictment on uh, on the unrighteous who know, who have seen, but who are not who who are actively working to suppress the truth. Yeah, agree, agree with both of you. And just to be
0: clear, I'm I'm not a fan of taking individual verses out of context, <laughs> but it was of course. just for conversational purposes only. <laughs> um okay well we're we're gonna get out of here with that then and I think that's good good conversation and I think just as kind of a closing thought there seems to be this recurring theme over the first even from the introductory week that we did to the first two words this idea that man this seemed like something um old ancient archaic out of date what what relevance what meaning does it have for us and I I think as Jason said, we've, I think we've all experienced that, yeah, this does this does have purpose and, and relevance to, to our lives, to our context, to our culture, um, to modern faith, uh, however you want to, to clarify that or, or describe that it does. And so one of the things that it makes me think about then is, uh, are there other things in my life that I perceive to be irrelevant or purposeless that may actually not be? Um, Am I selling something short or cutting off the potential of anything that, that maybe I could infuse with meaning? Um, not necessarily to create an idol out of it, as to connect to our conversation, <laughs> but are there activities that, that I'm kind of going through the motion on that, that could be infused with, with meaning? Uh, are there, there are ways that, that I'm kind of looking past things in my life um, that... That are there for a purpose that I'm not seeing, or you could go in a number of different directions with that as well. But that that's just maybe a closing contemplative thought for us to maybe take from today's conversation.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good thought. Uh, and if I could just throw out a possibility prayer, how how much are we really kind of engaging in prayer for what it's intended for, as opposed to just going through the motions? So.
0: Yeah, very true. And I think I was thinking personally in in line of kind of like where are the opportunities from pr- for prayer that I'm not utilizing as such? Because I'm just kind of going through my day or whatever it is um that could be an opportunity for a connection with God that I'm missing because I'm missing the the potential that it that it houses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you all again for for being part of this conversation and a part of this series. Uh, I've enjoyed enjoyed the study so far, the conversations within this podcast and without of it. Getting to talk through some of this with with both of you over the last few weeks, and so Rachel, will you close us in prayer for today?
1: Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our God. That you are our God. Thank you that you have brought us out of our own slavery and that you have covenanted with us, called us into relationship with you. Pray that we would choose you back because you have chosen us and that we would show fidelity toward you in the way that we talk and think and act and that all of those around us would be able to see the image of God in us and that our actions would show who Jesus is and help us just to be those who who demonstrate this path of Christ um, and bring others along in the way of discipleship. Thank you for these good words that you've given us as guidance and as your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.